Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. My mom called me and she's like, I just saw on the news that there's a fire in Riverside and it looks like Mark's house. She's like, I can't get a hold of him on his landline. I'm like, oh my gosh, screw it. I'll just go over there because you know, we needed to know. So I made up with this detective and I'm like, is my uncle okay? And he's like, no, I'm, I'm sorry. He's sorry, he's deceased. I don't know what to believe. Will we ever know what really went on? Because you wonder, why? Why did you have to do this? What the hell happened? That was so bad. How can someone be that mean? Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm here with Alexis Linkletter. Uh, I think we were supposed to start recording this like a half hour ago, and we just keep catching up and talking random shit and tangents. So this is what it's like having a professional podcast with your best friend. Right. Because I'm like, wait, but I want to tell you about this. Oh, wait, I need to talk about this. And we're like, oh my gosh, we have to stop. We have work to do. But, you know, it's addictive. You know, I just want to know. I want to be in the know. You're like talking about your nerve damage, asking me about my <laughs> ski trip. We're talking about like when is an appropriate time to day drink. Like it was kind of just going all over the place. And I love it. <laughs> to tell you, I could have gone on for quite a while. So you pulled the plug on it, but for the right reasons. Uh, we're saving it for actual like fun time and not work time. So right, getting right into business. Uh, do, you not, do you want to know what day it is today? Yes, please tell me what day it is today. So today is January 18th. By the way, I'm ready to be done with January. I'm done with winter in general. Like I'm ready for some warm weather. This has gone on for way too long. It's dragging. I want a pair of short shorts and a summer bop. And maybe a crop top. What's a summer bop? A song. Like a a trap house song. Oh God, that sounds so good. Okay, so it's January 18th. Summer bop would be a great name for like a, a drink. A summer bop? Yes. Ooh, you know? a fizzy drink. It's like yeah, a spritz. Right. Totally. That's that's our cocktail that we're going to make one day. Right. So today, it's kind of bleak. Um, it's maintenance day. So, you know, if you have like that uh, drain that needs to be cleaned out or whatever, today is the day. Gutters need to be fixed. Yeah. It's also museum selfie day, which I read up on a little bit. And I guess it was created by this mom that really wanted to honor the art that people go to see. And, you know, I, I don't really understand it. Then it's also National Gourmet Coffee Day. I love this. Go get yourself a nice fancy latte. I think that. I think that's a form of self-care. Oh, it's a form of self-care. I've been indulging in way too much. And uh, it's Winnie the Pooh Day and the Saurus Day. 
I love Winnie the Pooh because he wears no pants. And I love the sources because that's how I sound smart in emails and other writings. That's right. It's vocab words all day long. All right. Well, I think that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. If someone close to us falls victim to murder, the pain and shock is unlike few other things we'll ever experience. And we move through the grief and emotional turmoil of the ensuing nightmare. We grapple with the circumstances. In an ideal world, the killer is caught and justice is doled out swiftly with a punishment that fits the crime. But coming to terms with the driving forces behind violent acts can be one of the most painful aspects of grief. Sometimes people are killed over money, Other times, it's a form of jealousy or control in intimate and family relationships. But on far too many occasions, there's another motive which can be even more dark and dangerous. We're talking about hate crimes. They have been an ugly and all too prevalent part of history for literally centuries. These days, you'd hope that minorities are afforded the additional protection of both the state and federal legislation outlawing such abhorrent, targeted attacks. But as you're about to discover... That isn't the case. So we begin today's case on June 29th of 2001. So this is way before smartphones. Nobody had iPhones yet, but we are all using our Nokia cell phones. You know, the thing you played Snake on and got the light up little batteries. You're also probably listening to your music on a Discman or even the latest revolutionary device called an MP3 player that allowed you to have all of your music in one place digitally. And speaking of music, the number one song was Lady Marmalade. Do you remember this music video, Alexis? Pink, Christina Aguilera, Lil' Kim, Maya. And Maya dressed in these like very um, bar wenchy uh, cabaret feathers. (sighs) Yeah. And they were all like just sexy. And I was like, is this... This is like a Taylor Swift video now when she puts all the celebs in it. It was (laughs) was just so indulgent. It was so indulgent. And it was so powerful with women. They all looked gorgeous. It made me feel really good to be a gal. So at the box office, Steven Spielberg's AI artificial intelligence starring Haley Joel Osment, remember him, and Jude Law was number one. And also the very first Fast and the Furious hit the theaters. And it was in the number two spot. So the setting for today's story is Wichita, Kansas. Situated in south-central Kansas, the city of around 398,000 people is located about 143 miles southwest of Topeka. Wichita is named for the traditional owners of this land, being the Wichita people, a confederation of southern Plains Native American tribes. Incorporated as a city in 1870, Wichita was nicknamed Cowtown, becoming the destination for cattle drives traveling from Texas to the Kansas railroads. And if you loved your fast food, you'll probably know that Wichita is known as the birthplace of Pizza Hut and White Castle. I did not know that. I didn't either. White Castle, man. So our first degree for today's story is Amy, and we're going to delve into Amy's family a little bit. So Amy's mom is the third of four siblings, and the oldest was Amy's uncle Marcel, or Mark, as he was known to the rest of the family. And Amy loved her uncle Mark, and Mark, who didn't have any children of his own, loved spending time with his niece. 
My mom was a nurse, and when my grandma was alive in the 70s, we always had family dinner every Sunday. There wasn't any excuse for you not to be there. It was so much fun, and my grandma was just a little thing, but she could cook, and she loved her grandkids, and I think that we were all kind of Uncle Mark's kids because he never had any kids. More to know about Amy's family. Amy's maternal side of the family is part Native American, and they're pretty dialed into their heritage. In fact, Amy's great-grandmother was the last full-blood Indian chief to the Kaw Nation. It was my grandfather who was half Native American, so my mom and Uncle Mark were, you know, they're all a quarter, and you can definitely tell that they're Indian. The high cheekbones, dark complexion, dark hair, all that. So they always kept good records. My aunt is really involved in our Kaw Nation, the tribe in Oklahoma. We have given artifacts to museum there, and we get a lot of resources. I've learned a lot from my aunt will have her cousins come that they haven't seen in years, and it's like stepping back in history, just listen to them talk and tell stories about what it was like living on the land there in Pahuska, Oklahoma, and watching their grandma ride their back horses. It's fun to listen to them. So I'm just like trying to absorb all that history before they're all gone. And Amy had a special bond with her uncle, Mark. He was born on April 21st, 1943 in Coos Bay, Oregon. In 1954, when Mark was 11 years old, the family moved to Oklahoma, where his grandparents lived after leaving an Indian reservation. Five years later, when Mark was 16, the family moved yet again, this time to Wichita. But not long afterwards... Mark's dad sadly passed away. And this was a huge blow to the family unit. But despite that, Mark was gentle and friendly with everyone he crossed paths with. And he seemed to, you know, take that loss in stride. They lived in a really small town in Valley Center. It's a little suburb north of Wichita. Their dad died. So they grew up with just grandma taking care of them. And they were quite the handful. I think Mark and his youngest sister went out and did a lot of drinking. Must have gotten a lot of mischief. But by the time he got out of high school, his dad was gone. And I don't know if it would have been different if his dad would have still been alive. During Mark's teen years, while he was still in high school, he discovered his sexuality. He was gay and his family was really accepting of it. But because this wasn't something openly spoken about in the 1960s, it was never really a huge topic of discussion in Mark's family. But because his family was so accepting and so loving, Mark had the freedom to be himself. Grandma was very accepting. We just accepted that's just who he was. You can't judge. I think he must have come out right out of high school. I don't think it was a really big deal. Beyond having a strong sense of self, Mark always knew exactly what he wanted to do when he grew up. He wanted to do hair. So after graduating high school in 1968, he went straight to cosmetology school. And once he had the skills, he did the hair of everyone he knew and quickly became a popular stylist with tons of clients. And Mark ran his own business, and he was quite the success. He even made the local news as stylist to former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Dan Glickman. But of course, Mark's favorite clients were his nearest and dearest, who he always had time for, and his generosity knew no bounds. I remember being a teenager, and if we ever needed a haircut, we just called up Mark. <laughs> he just come to his shop, and 
by the time you, he would, he'd schedule you at the end of the day and then you'd we'd take him for errands, take him home, hang out. He was just real laid back and easy going. As Amy grew up and entered her teen years, she started building her own life, as we all do. And we enter that phase where we see less of our families and more of our friends. But Amy still caught up with her Uncle Mark at family events and on summer trips to her family's lake house. And of course, Mark's long-term partners were always treated as part of the family, too. We always gathered for birthdays and celebrations. We didn't see him near as much in those latter years because he was didn't work as much and he just kind of hung around Riverside and his little home community wherever he lived and did his own thing and he always had a landline he'd call and you know this was the early 2000 2001 so cell phones weren't really much of a thing yet my parents have a, a cabin at a Fall River Lake it's about an hour east of Wichita and that was like a summer thing that we always did. And he would, he loved to come out to the lake with us. The one guy he was with for the longest time, Bruce. They were so much fun. One Christmas, such a vivid memory is he dressed up like Santa Claus and came to my grandma's house to visit. And we were so excited. It was just really cool. So the pictures that Amy kindly sent us of her uncle really depict a man who relished spending time with his family and getting out and living life. I mean, he there's one of him on a boat, uh, which looks like he's like on a lake, just chilling really hard. He has the biggest smile. He just looks like a good time. Right. And this other one, he's got like bleach blonde hair and it's kind of like in a mushroom cut like Nick Carter. Yeah. And he's got a cut off T-shirt on. He's holding what looks like his, you know, nieces and nephews in one picture. He just looks like a good time guy. He looks like a happy spirited guy. And he's the type of guy that can actually rock a mustache. There are not many men out there that can yep. rock a mustache and he really can. It looks good he's, on him. Yeah, he's making it work. So by 2001, Amy wasn't a teenager anymore. She was 26 years old. She had an exciting career and she was working full time at the local courthouse. At the same time, she was also a busy single mom to five-year-old twins. First of all, I have to say, you are a superhero. That is incredible. But of course, Uncle Mark was the one who was going to give her twins their very first haircuts. And that's like a super special memory for her. And sounds so cute when you think about it. So cute. And while the whole family remained close with Mark and loved him dearly, as the years passed, he began to struggle with an alcohol dependency. Amy thinks that he may have started drinking as a coping mechanism over his sexuality. And due to his drinking, Mark eventually lost his cosmetology license, but he still worked cutting hair for his family and people in his neighborhood. You know, the only real difference was he wasn't working in a salon or a barbershop. As years progressed, his alcoholism progressed along with that. And so he just would rent chairs from people and he just worked. And eventually, he lost his license. He would ride the bus everywhere. And he loved living downtown in Riverside. And it was so easy to catch a bus and walk places. So after a stint in rehab, Mark wanted to take a new direction in his life as a drug counselor. So he started taking classes at Wichita State University to pursue that. But when he caught a debilitating respiratory illness, he was forced to drop out of school. He was so distraught by that that he had relapsed as a result. 
he had some mental health issues there towards the end, but he was getting help. He could go down to the Indian Center and and get services. And he hung out with people in his neighborhood. He knew his neighbors really well. He would cut his neighbor's hair. So he just hung out with friends and people needed haircuts. He'd pick them up or he'd just do it at his house, whatever. So Marcel was still working mainly for the wide network of the people that he knew in his life, but his family was worried about his partying. On the night of June 28, 2001, Mark had been drinking and called Amy's mom at home for a little chat. Right. And when Mark called that night, Amy's mom was frustrated to hear how intoxicated he was because this is her brother and she's worried about him. So in a moment of frustration, she ended the call with Mark kind of abruptly, like, call me when you're sober type thing. She always used to say he got his days and nights mixed up when he was drinking, when he'd get on these bad drinking binges. And he'd just call and he'd want to chit-chat, just talk about anything. And I guess he called later at night, and my mom wasn't in the mood. She was like, Mark, just call me back when you're sober. I don't want to talk to you right now. And she was pretty hateful. Mark was not discouraged. He was feeling chatty. So he called back and spoke to Amy's sister. Mark's other niece. She had called back and my sister was there. She answered and she talked to Uncle Mark for quite a while. And he was telling her that he was partying. He was been at a neighbor's for a barbecue. So after Mark and Amy's sister hung up, he headed out to his neighbor's barbecue, just like he said he was going to do. And the next day, Amy got a call at work. Her family was getting ready to head out to their lake house for the 4th of July weekend, but her mom had seen a TV news report about a fire in the residential downtown area. And the house in the news footage looked a lot like Mark's. I remember that day very well. It was a Friday, the weekend of July 4th festivities. My mom called me and she's like, I just saw on the news that there's a fire in Riverside and it looks like Mark's house. She's like, I can't get a hold of him on his landline. I'm like, oh my gosh. So she called my stepsister that lived here at the time. Her husband worked for Wichita PD. So she had called him to go investigate for us. But it was like hours and we never heard anything back from him. And all I could think of was, uh, must be something really bad. When the family couldn't get in touch with Mark to see if he was okay, Amy just drove over to his house herself. And her fears grew when she saw the home was locked down with a police presence and sealed off with crime scene tape. And so I'm like, screw it. I'm just like probably a mile from his house. I'll just go over there because we needed to know. It had been hours. Nobody knew anything. So I went over there and... I'd never been to a scene like that before. And they're like, who are you? Why are you here? And I'm like, I'm here because my uncle lives here. I heard it was a house fire and they have it taped off with police tape. And I'm just like, I just need to know if my uncle's okay. But Mark wasn't okay. And to find out what happened, you know the drill. We got to go back. Around 3 a.m. on the morning of June 29, 2001, a resident in 58-year-old Mark Eads' neighborhood called 911 to report seeing and smelling smoke in the area. The plumes were so huge and dense, and the homes so close together, 
it was initially difficult for firefighters en route to tell exactly where the smoke was coming from and which house was on fire. And when 16 firefighters arrived in seven trucks, they thought that they were dealing with a run-of-the-mill fire that they see probably every day. Inside the home that had been set afire, the smoke was so thick that visibility was only 12 inches. And in the dining room, firefighters discovered the lifeless body of a man kneeling and slumped over a coffee table. It was Mark. Mark was brought to the front yard so firefighters could try to administer aid. Mark was covered in soot and blood and had sustained burns to between 60 or 70% of his body. However, the burns weren't consistent with the position he was found in. And that was something that was really strange to these first responders. And as they took a closer look, they saw that he had a stab wound to his head and multiple blunt force injuries as well. He had been beaten to within an inch of his life. There truly is nothing worse than itchy skin and especially an itchy scalp and especially if you have psoriasis. So if you're dealing with an itchy scalp, itchy skin or psoriasis, you need to check out Ocean Soothe, which is a natural solution that relieves psoriasis and problematic skin and scalp conditions. So it's sourced in Australia and manufactured here in the USA. Ocean Soothe products deliver relief to the areas where you really need it most and they offer a head to toe solution. So you don't need to put together this whole crazy cocktail of products to treat your skin and find relief. So the Ocean Sooth Gel and Lotion are recognized by the Natural Psoriasis Foundation, so you know that they're good to relieve psoriasis and can be used across your whole body. They're naturally made, so you don't have to experience any crazy side effects, and they're odorless, which I love because I hate a scent. It always makes me feel extra itchy. So if you want to check them out, Abundance Natural Health Ocean Sooth products are available now at CVS Health Hub stores. Head over and shop today and get your hands on some Ocean Sooth. I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French, and it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten, and I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast-track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending 
depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Allo Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Allo Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Allo Moves. Go to allomoves.com and use code FIRST for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code FIRST, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code FIRST. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on the first degree. And when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV. And that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials. And the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. At Mark's autopsy following his death at his home, it was determined that Mark was still alive following the brutal assault when the house he was in was lit on fire. Mark had died from smoke inhalation and thermal burns, but the blunt force injuries and stab wound to his head contributed to his death also for obvious reasons. And in the smoldering remains of the house, investigators found cans of beer in the kitchen and on the front lawn. On the kitchen counter sat the remains of a snack that Mark never got to eat, which was a sandwich with the meat filling melted to the cabinet. Detectives also found weapons used by the perpetrator, a candlestick smeared with blood and hair, a wooden stick with blood and biological matter, and a bloody knife. Mark's computer printer sat on the dining room floor, but his monitor and hard drive were gone. His stereo was also gone. And inside the house, there was no sign of any forced entry, and both the front and back doors were unlocked. So there are questions here, of course. How had this fire started? Who started it? Furthermore, who did this to such a sweet man like Mark? When investigators found the origin of the fire, it was clear that the fire was no accident. This was arson. Investigators concluded that the fire was intentionally set after the dining room bookcase was set ablaze. And the severe head trauma that Mark had sustained meant that he had no chance of escape. The following morning, the fire made the news, which prompted Amy to drive over to her uncle's house to check on him. Remember, she told us about that minutes ago. And when she got there, she told the cops who she was. But they were less than friendly and way less than helpful. They want to know my name, my date of birth. And I'm just like, I just need to know if my uncle's okay. They're like, ma'am, we can't tell you anything. You need, he gave me a business card. He says, you need to call this homicide detective. 
So he gives me this business card. So I got it run back to my office and I call this number. And of course I get a voicemail and I just tell him who I am and that I need to know what's up with my uncle or all the families wanting to know. Of course, this is really, really worrisome to Amy and her family. And luckily, it didn't take long for Amy to get a call from one of the detectives who asked her to come into the police station. He called me back and he said, hey, he says, is there any way you can come to downtown to my office? So I meet up with this detective and I'm like, just tell me, is my uncle okay? And he's like, no, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you he's deceased. And, and, you know, you're not ready for that. I didn't believe him. I'm like, how do you know? You don't know who my uncle is. I wanted some visual proof. He's like, I just know we've we've found his ID and we've identified him. And yes, he's deceased. And just like that, Amy and the rest of Mark's family were forced into a heartbreaking and shocking new reality. To make things even more devastating, the detective wouldn't share any further information right away because this was an active investigation. All his family knew was that someone had murdered Mark, and his grief-stricken loved ones had to remain in the dark in terms of the details, for now at least. We were just told that evening everyone had gathered at my mom's house, and we didn't know a lot of specifics. We didn't know much of anything that night. It was very stressful. Everyone was very upset. It's a blur. I just remember my mom and her sisters making funeral arrangements, and we didn't go to the lake that weekend, didn't celebrate the 4th of July because we had other things to take care of. Investigators got to work interviewing Mark's sisters and nieces to determine whether he had any enemies or anybody that could possibly want to hurt him. When police spoke to Amy's sister, she told them about the call that she'd had with her uncle the night before he was killed. And she recounted what he said that his plans were that night. So he said that he was going to party at a neighborhood's barbecue where he'd met some quote-unquote young kids. Right. And after Mark said that, the last thing Amy's sister said was telling her uncle Mark to be careful. Who are these kids that he's talking about? Because he said young kids. My uncle didn't hang out with young kids and party with young kids. We just thought that was really weird. And he said that these kids had crack. And she was like, Mark, what are you doing? She's like, you need to be careful. And he was just, oh, we're partying. It's all good. And we just thought it was really odd because that's something really out of character. I don't know if they were like trying to get beer out of my uncle or what. Mark would, he'd give anybody anything they needed. He was just a generous person, and I don't think he knew a lot about these kids, obviously. So this was the lead that the detectives needed. They soon identified the house where the neighborhood barbecue was held that Mark had attended, which then led police to the names of two young suspects, 18-year-old Zachary Stewart and 16-year-old Brandon Boone. Teenagers. Zachary Aaron Stewart grew up as the only child of single dad Martin. Zachary had infrequent contact with his mom, who left when her son was only three months old. He was always in childcare when his dad was working, but the pair seemed to have a close enough bond. Martin wanted to set a good example for his son, 
After completing a drug treatment program, he went on to graduate from Wichita State University focusing on sociology and then worked with foster families. When Zachary was in middle school, he started to act out. However, he managed to graduate high school. Right. And it's not clear from the research exactly how Zachary met Brandon Clark Boone. So let's talk about Brandon. Brandon was raised by his mom and just like Zachary, started acting out during middle school. Hey, we all did. I did. But it never yep. got this crazy. So Brandon began smoking marijuana in sixth grade and started drinking at 14. He used cocaine. He skipped a lot of school and disobeyed all the court-ordered curfews that he was given as he was getting in trouble with this stuff. In June of 2000, his behavior escalated when he swung a metal rod at a man and threatened to kill him. Oh my gosh. Teenagers can be terrifying. I'm always like, that sounds like an adult crime. What are we talking about? Yeah, that's crazy. Crazy. The following month, Zachary and Brandon committed felony burglary during a break-in at a laundromat. They were convicted and the court ordered Zachary to have no further contact with Brandon. But Zachary repeatedly violated his probation following the conviction. He kept using drugs and didn't stay with his dad, landing him five weeks in jail. Yeah, and In November of 2000, he was subject to a court-imposed curfew and randomized drug testing. So two months later, in January of 2001, Zachary was put under intensive probation supervision and drug treatment by the court. But by late June, he was in court-ordered rehab. But at 7.30 p.m. on June 28th, he absconded from the treatment facility. I'm telling you, it's like these people get chances after chances. And it's like you're having tax funded treatment. Yeah. You know, you're not paying for it and you're squandering it. It's like, it's so unreal. Zachary, I guess my uncle was pretty good friends with his dad. He was like a single dad. Zach Stewart had um, some mental health issues and he'd been in and out of rehab. Kind of felt sorry for the kid. I didn't really know anything about him. We didn't hear anything about his background nothing about him. At this point, Zachary and Brandon were identified as being at this barbecue, right? But how did law enforcement really build the case against them? When investigators spoke to the other locals who had been at the event, it emerged that Zachary and Mark actually knew each other. As Amy said moments ago, Zachary's dad, Martin, was Mark's friend, and he'd been cutting the father and son's hair for several years. And not only that, a friend of Mark's gave more context to how they kind of knew each other more. And he told law enforcement that Mark said that he was having a sexual relationship with Zachary. Right. And to be honest, I'm not sure. And when I spoke with Amy, this all is sort of uh, blurry. We don't know if that's true. We don't, we really don't know because we'll get there, but take some of this stuff with a grain of salt, right? As detectives gathered statements from witnesses who had been in the company of the two young men at various points on the night in question, a sinister picture emerged. So it turns out, on the evening of June 28th, Mark did in fact attend the barbecue at his neighbor's house. Zachary was there too, and Zachary was there and he was looking for Mark. The men spoke for a few minutes before heading over to Mark's. Then about an hour later, Zachary headed off to meet up with Brandon, who was at his 15-year-old girlfriend's house. So Zachary was heading over there, and when he got there, he asked anybody if they wanted to buy cocaine. And meanwhile, Mark returned to the barbecue where he confided in the host that he had done drugs with Zachary and that they'd hooked up. So eventually, 
I'm seeing this in my head, like people coming to the party, leaving, like coming into this, like a barbecue in the back. And that's, I'm seeing like how the story is being relayed, like a game of telephone amongst this group of people. Right. So it's like, yeah. now what happens is Zachary comes back to the barbecue about an hour later and then he speaks with Mark again. And at around 1030 or 11, the pair leaves and they go back to Mark's place once more and they take some beer with them. Then not long after, around 1230 a.m., Zachary leaves again, Mark's house, and goes back to Brandon's girlfriend's place, taking some beer and cigarettes from Mark's with him. So I'm seeing this as like four locations. Everyone's kind of shuffling back and forth between it's a party night. They're going to the barbecue. They're going to Mark's. They're going to the girlfriend's house. And that's sort of where everyone's ping-ponging between this entire night, just to just give you some context. Right. So by this time, other people who were at her house, including Brandon, heard Zachary say that he'd been at the house of a guy who was trying to sell him cocaine. He also claimed that the man grabbed him in the crotch, offering oral sex in exchange for the drugs. And Zachary was angry about what he claimed had happened, saying that he wanted to kick the, and I'm not going to say it, but it's homophobic slurs, ass, and take his shit. And so this is disgusting and repulsive language. I, I obviously was not going to repeat it. So Zachary invited another guy who was present to join him, but the man refused. Right. And after that, Zachary and Brandon left. And when they left, their friends had no idea where they'd gone. But they were gone for about half an hour before returning with something in tow, something in their hands. They had a CD player with them, but they didn't really elaborate on why they had it or where it came from, right? Then they spoke privately before Brandon told someone that he had to leave again for a little bit to go back to the homophobic slurs house with Zachary to, quote, wipe up fingerprints they left. Okay. So then the pair leaves again for about 45 minutes. Then they return around 3 a.m. So I'm trying to envision a world in which someone is saying this stuff to me. Like, I got to wipe up some fingerprints. Everyone must be doing drugs and drinking. Like, I truly don't know how else this... You wouldn't, like, catch on to something sketchy going on? Because, like, they're spelling it out pretty clearly. Yeah. There's no secrecy. They're not being discreet, you know? No. Right. insane. So, based on statements Zachary and Brandon had made in front of these witnesses, it became clear to detectives that it looked like that they had a pretty clear-cut hate crime on their hands. Witnesses believe that Zachary asked Brandon to go with him to retaliate against what Zachary claimed were these unwanted advances. And remember, one of Mark's friends told the police that they had hooked up previously to that time. So we do need to take everything that Zachary is saying with a grain of salt. And there were other kids involved. I think that's how they got all that information. Zachary Stewart said that my uncle had made a pass at him. And I was just like, what? My Uncle, he had boundaries. We didn't hang out with young people. But that was just information that we kind of gathered from the news and what the DA had told us from police reports and in talking to Stewart. And there was other direct evidence implicating the suspects as well. So around 10.50 a.m. on June 29th, Zachary Brandon and another friend were captured on CCTV trying to pawn a stereo. And this is a day after Mark's senseless killing. Zachary also tried to sell some other items to his friends, including a computer monitor, two speakers, and a hard drive. Remember, we told you that Mark had a printer on the floor, but the rest of his computer was missing. So yeah, that's 
not just a coincidence, and it's not a coincidence that those were just the items missing from Mark's smoldering, burnt-down house. So that evening, police executed a search warrant at Brandon's girlfriend's house. And in the trunk of her brother's car, officers discovered a bloody stone, two speakers, a stereo, computer monitor, keyboard, mouse, and a modem. The serial number on the monitor matched the one on boxes for computer equipment found at Marcel's house. But officers made their most incriminating find in the attic of the house because that's where Brandon was hiding. Calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. Suspects Zachary and Brandon were both charged with first-degree murder of Mark, as well as with burglary, robbery, and arson. The police seized the clothing they'd both been wearing on the night of the barbecue, which all were covered with blood. All the clothing was covered in blood. They weren't smart enough to throw them away. They took them off and took them to some house and put them up in an attic to hide them. Despite Brandon being only 16 at the time of the killing, prosecutors decided that he would be tried as an adult. And Mark's family braced themselves for the emotional and painful ordeal of the trial. Because he'd had such a bad juvenile record that they were going to charge him as an adult. We found all the dirty details that they, you know, not only did they beat him up, steal his stuff and try and set his house on fire, but they went back and did it a second time. Luckily, they show you the pictures before you go to court. You don't ever get it out of your mind. My mom was like, there's his teeth. I was like, oh. And I had to show him in court. So I was thankful that we knew it was coming. And, you know, it wasn't as quite as a shock because that would have been awful to have a reaction yeah. like that in front of the whole world. Mark's memorial service was held several days later, but Amy doesn't remember much about it. According to her, those days, those initial days after learning of what had happened to her uncle were a complete blur, 
the grief was visceral, overwhelming in her entire family. Like she's like, truly, it's like a block of time that I do not remember because of the shock and the pain of it all. It was really hard to hear her talk about that because I get that. <laughs> like, imagine, yeah. imagine how hearing this about someone you love and you had just seen and who cuts your twin's hair. It's, it's so awful to imagine. So yeah, she doesn't remember this part, but he did have a memorial service and it, I'm sure it was beautiful. It was small and quaint, just like he would have liked. He wasn't a flashy person. He was just a simple, very earthy person. He loved astrology and plants, loved the garden. It was just a simple family ceremony. I just remember I had to take my twins, and I didn't know how to... I never told him what happened for years. I don't want to tell him about the horrific details that he was murdered. I just told him that Uncle Mark died. As everyone awaited the trial's preliminary hearing, DNA tests revealed that blood found on the pants Brandon was wearing the night of the murder did belong to Mark. Blood on one of Zachary's shoes also revealed DNA consistent with Mark, as did blood on the stone recovered from the car. The blood and hair found smeared on the candlestick and longer wooden stick was also confirmed as Mark's. There was also swaths of fingerprint evidence. Zachary's prints were found on the car, as well as on a beer can on Mark's front lawn, while Brandon's were found on the computer modem. So police had tons of evidence that implicated Zachary and Brandon. But according to Amy, when it came to motive, the DA told Mark's family that in the end, there wasn't sufficient evidence to prove the attack was a hate crime. Okay, so we're going to pause here for just a second to talk about hate crime statutes. So at the time of Mark's murder... Kansas was really lagging behind other states in terms of hate crime legislation. So if you're familiar with Kansas law, and you might not be because that's a super niche thing, you'll know that in the state, hate crimes are not considered a separate category from an assault or murder motivated by hate. And over 20 years later, sadly, nothing has changed. There is no law currently in place in Kansas making homophobia, transphobia, or any of the isms an aggravating factor which could automatically upgrade charges to a capital offense. At present, when it comes to crimes motivated by a victim's sexual orientation, Kansas's hate crime law only provides for something called penalty enhancements. Yes. So penalty enhancements are provisions which can increase the sentence for crimes motivated by certain factors. So some states call them aggravating factors or mitigating factors when it comes to reducing or adding time or punishment or any other variable to to any crime. Um, they're mitigating and aggravating, right? So in Mark's case, if it could be proven that he was expressly targeted because of his sexual orientation, this could be used to justify imposing a harsher sentence on the convicted. However, as an important side note, penalty enhancements in Kansas law don't apply to transphobic hate crimes. So that's really screwed up. Yeah. So just gay people or lesbian people, LGBTQ people, but just trans. I mean, I need to understand this law a little better and I'm going to do some more research to figure out how they could possibly be excluding that group of people. But quite frankly, I think we can all agree that's incredibly sad and shitty and antiquated given this day and age. Yeah, it's horrible. So of course, these days, there's also federal laws in place legislating against hate crimes. But penalties can only be imposed at this level if someone's federally protected rights have been violated. And unfortunately, this just did not happen in Mark's case. So when Mark's family pressed investigators about incorporating the homophobic element into these charges, 
Law enforcement seemed to kind of just dance around it. Instead, they focused on the acts themselves and kind of disregarded the motive. And maybe it's because they didn't think they had enough to prove it. I don't know. I'm not in their heads. But what we do know is that Zachary and Brandon weren't charged with hate crime enhancements at all, despite court documents later stating that based on witness statements, the evidence both established and supported the evidence that Mark's sexual orientation is in fact what provoked these accused men to kill him. The DA told us that we didn't have hate crime legislation in Kansas, so all we could do was go after him for aggravated robbery, murder, arson, battery. I mean, they got seven felonies for all that they did to him. At the preliminary hearing in August of 2001, Zachary and Brandon both pleaded not guilty. They blamed each other for instigating the crime, beating Mark, and starting the fire. Details of the crime were laid out for the court. Mark had been assaulted with a candlestick holder, a broomstick, or the end of a table, or both. He'd been stabbed in the head with a knife and made one fifteenth of an inch deep pinpricks to his arm. Afterwards, he was robbed. These men stole his stereo and computer equipment to make it look like a robbery. Then they went to Brandon's girlfriend's place where they discussed the crime in front of several witnesses. And concerned about what evidence that they might have left behind, Zachary and Brandon returned to Mark's to try to remove their fingerprints from the scene. While they were there, they savagely beat him again, this time with a rock, before setting the house on fire. Both of the accused claimed that they tried to extinguish the fire, which is most likely a lie because nobody called 911. So how hard did anybody really try to put the fire out? Like, did you put a cup of water on the fire? I don't, yeah. I don't get it. No, they didn't. They put that. They lit that fire to try to get away with it. Yeah. And Brandon's girlfriend, right? The third house in the equation that night where everyone was going between this house, that house, the barbecue, whatever. She told the court that when news of the fire and murder broke on TV that Brandon had explicitly confessed to her. And there was a lot of evidence introduced in this preliminary hearing. Because this is just, we're not even at the trial phase yet, right? And it was probably hard for a lot of people in Mark's life to see and hear this evidence for the first time. But this is one step of the many steps that need to happen to get to the trials and for these trials to be scheduled so these men could be held accountable. But in early December of 2001, Zachary decided to plead guilty to felony murder and aggravated robbery. In return, prosecutors dropped five other charges, including first-degree murder and the aggravated burglary and arson. Zachary maintained that he killed Mark because Mark hit on him. In January of 2002, Zachary was sentenced to life plus six years in prison with parole after 25 years. He had inquired with Mark about his sexuality. He was asking my uncle about something like that and ended up killing him. Now we need to note here that Zachary and Brandon's allegation that Mark made unwanted advances toward Zachary is probably exactly what it sounds like. And that's BS. In all likelihood, it's nothing more than an unsophisticated cowardly excuse provided by a known criminal and liar, which should be taken with the very large grain of salt it deserves. And even if you believe this official narrative that Zachary and Brandon are, you know, spewing out there, we do need to speak to the justification that they presented to the court. So the excuse that Zachary and Brandon offered was known as the gay panic defense. So according to LGBTQbar.org, this legal strategy, which is rooted in homophobia and transphobia, asks the court to find that a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity is responsible for inciting violence. I cannot believe this is a thing. 
Totally. And this has been used a lot I know. in history. And they don't call it the gay defense anymore. They call it the LGBTQ plus defense. Oh my God. So nice. But, but so kind, right? But the point is, is that back then, this was in the two, early 2000s, it was the gay defense. Gay panic defense was something yeah. that ha- we saw through the 90s, et cetera. And this defense is problematic for so many reasons. Not only does it attempt to excuse such resulting violence, but it legitimizes it too. And basically, in states where the gay panic defense is still permitted, the tactic is used to bolster a defense of insanity or diminish capacity, provocation, or self-defense. So when you take into account of the fact that the LGBTQ plus community is around 19 million people, and they're disproportionately targeted when it comes to hate crimes, it's clear that this defense is a total dumpster fire when it comes to basic human rights and achieving equality for LGBTQ plus people. And according to the American Bar Association, one in five gay, lesbian, or bisexual people will experience hate crime, while the statistic for transgender folks is one in four, which is so fucking heartbreaking. And that's not even taking into consideration those in the LGBTQ plus community who identify as women and are also people of color. So it's complicated, but we can see the stats paint a very clear picture. So while this defense has been banned by legislation in 17 states and another 12 are in the process of passing the ban, it is still actively in use in a staggering 21 other states. And this does include Kansas, where Mark was murdered by these teenagers. But we are going to get back to the story. And what we just told you does play into this case. So unlike Zachary, Brandon went to trial over Mark's murder. Despite the overwhelming amount of evidence against him, he continued to deny his involvement, even though the fact Mark was still alive when the fire was lit proved that Brandon had the time and opportunity to think through his intention to murder. But for Mark's family, the whole judicial process seemed like an anticlimax. Brandon didn't take the stand in his defense, and no witnesses were called. So they're not getting the answers that they deserve. We never got called to talk, thankfully. It's like he just sat there emotionless. His attorney did nothing for him. He just said, no, I didn't do it. All that testimony that they have had to hear from the police and the firefighters and the pictures and the details. And his attorney had no rebuttals, no excuses, nothing. On March 7th, 2002, Brandon was found guilty of first-degree murder, aggravated arson, aggravated robbery, and aggravated burglary. At sentencing, Brandon and those who spoke in his support maintained that Zachary was the real mastermind behind the whole thing. But anyone could see that Mark's blood on Brandon's clothes meant that he was an active participant and not a follower. So in May of 2002, Brandon was sentenced to life plus six years in prison with no parole for 20 years. In June the following year, Zachary filed for post-conviction relief, but this was denied another year later. Brandon appealed his convictions for aggravated arson and first-degree murder, but in January of 2004, this was upheld. So, sorry guys, you did the crime, you have to do the time. Like, it's an awful thing that was done. Like, I'm always so shocked when people who are convicted on such open and shut cases are like, I'm going to file an appeal. It's like, good luck, bro. Like, it's a heinous act. You're staying in jail. So for Amy, the emotional scars are obviously still close to the surface today. 
Her uncle's murder has left a painful, gaping hole in their lives, but Amy chooses to focus on the fond memories. It still makes me sad, and I miss him. At all of our family gatherings, I wish she could have met my other kids. I have four kids. We've missed out on a lot of years, a lot of fun time, and I just hate it. But I'm glad that we have all the pictures we have. I even have videos. He gave my twins their first haircut. And I have a video of that. It's so fun. This is something that really got to me when I was talking to Amy. Um, and she talked about this a lot, about how her mom continues to live with guilt after getting mad at her brother over his drinking and hanging up on him the night before he was killed. Um, she struggles with that. She's like, I wish I would have been nicer. You know, um, you don't know when something bad is going to happen. And in those those moments of anger, it's like you're you're concerned for his well-being because of his drinking. Like I think it was out of love, you know? And I yeah. tried to be like, Amy, tell your mom it's she's she doesn't deserve to feel bad. Yeah. Um, and the fact that she does just means she's that much better of a person, right? Her feelings are understandable, and most of us would probably feel that way. No one wants the last conversation with any of our loved ones to be one where harsh words are exchanged. But we all have times when we get snappy with our siblings. It's kind of like the sibling vibe. Like you, you can't hold yourself accountable because that's what siblings have done since you were kids. We kind of snap at each other because we love each other, right? Mm-hmm. No matter how close we are and how much we love them, sometimes they're annoying and we got to put them in their place. My mom has always carried so much guilt because she didn't take the time to talk to him and she was mean to him and I'm like, Mother, you didn't know. So she's carried a lot of guilt. She took it so hard because she felt so bad. Today, 39-year-old Zachary and 38-year-old Brandon are both eligible for parole, which is terrifying. Terrifying! Marcel's family now has to face his killers applying for release. In May 2021, both men's applications were denied. And it's no surprise since both of them have failed to keep their noses clean during their incarceration. They each racked up a long string of disciplinary offenses. Like, do you think you're getting out of jail? I always ask my mother, do you want to participate in this? No, no, you can just do it for me and just tell me about it. But my aunt participated. They don't show you the prisoners, thankfully. (laughs) I was really nervous about that. There was no one that spoke for either one of them. Not one person, friend or family, and that spoke on in support of them. Their next opportunity for parole is this year, in June of 2023. And it's no surprise to anyone listening, I'm sure, that this is not a process that Amy or her family looks forward to. This is a process that's traumatic for them every single time. And to make things worse, Brandon continues to deny his involvement. But what I said to Amy is like, great. The longer he denies it, the longer he'll be in there. The news did a story on Boone years later about how he still says he didn't do any. He didn't take any part of it, but he's a liar. He needs to stay there, I think. And I know that sounds mean and awful, but people like that don't need to be in society. I know that they're supposed to be rehabilitated, but I don't think everyone can be rehabilitated. I'm just scared for the day that they do get out. I feel sorry for Zach. Seems like he's had a lot of mental health issues. And I hate that for anyone. But it seems like maybe he has been somewhat rehabilitated from looking at, you know, their their prison records, their behavior stuff. But that's just terrifying to me to think that they're they can be let back out into society. I mean, they're only going to be in there 
late 30s at this point in time. I got a whole lot of life to live. A whole lot of life that I took from my uncle and our family. Mark's murder has affected Amy in a deep and profound way. She became a different and much more hypervigilant person the day that she learned her uncle had been killed. And it's forever shaped her perspective on the inherent goodness of people in general. It's traumatized me greatly. I'm always on guard. I don't trust anybody. I have a lot of PTSD from it. And everything you do and where you go and who's going to be there. I won't even go to events downtown. I don't trust people. <laughs> Especially if my kids are with me. I kept a pretty sheltered life because of that. It's, it's scary. And after being my house being almost broken into when I was home, I don't, you never know what, what can happen at any given time. And I try and stress that with my kids. And they're just like, oh, mom, you're so paranoid. Amy misses her uncle more than she can say. She doesn't want people to forget what happened to him and more importantly, why he died. Because he was important and you never get to hear about the victims. You only get to hear about the perpetrators. He had so much life to give and he did a lot of good for people and he was just robbed. We were all robbed of many more years of his company and just our family. I think we've all kind of fallen apart since then, grown apart. The world can be so strange. There's so many good people out there doing really good things. But at the same time, there's a lot of weird, unnerving energy floating around these days. It's difficult to know if or where a threat will come from. Obviously, some people wonder whether Mark's killers could fully comprehend the long-term consequences of their actions, given their ages. All we can hope is that age eventually brings them a fuller understanding of the implications of their monstrous acts that have destroyed several lives. As repugnant as the killer's attempt at an explanation for the behavior was, it keeps the LGBTQ panic defense and the prevalence of hate crimes against this community in the spotlight, which is a problem. It also reminds us that we all have an obligation to be the allies who are needed to not only stamp out hate, but ensure the law is there to protect the most vulnerable in our communities. Well, huge thank you to Amy, who, by the way, took the time to kindly provide us with some of the most valuable sources that we needed in today's episode. If you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, no story is too small or too insignificant. You can email us hello at the first Follow us on Instagram. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon. There's a lot of fun bonus content for you over there. And come back to our feeds tomorrow for a brand new episode of Killing Time. Yeah, one more shout out for Amy. Amy, you were you are such a force. I mean, she works at a courthouse and she gave me everything I needed. Oh my God. I see you, girl. Like I, I was like, we had a really connected, amazing call. And I just, I'm so sorry you lost your uncle. And um, I'm really glad that you brought us this story because his his memory lives on with you. And now here on The First Degree with us. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close but not that close.
Shout out to Jared Monica for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are court documents, find a grave, the Wichita Eagle, Kansas Department of Corrections, Southern Poverty Law Center, humanrightscampaign.org, the U.S. Department of Justice, Arkansas, lgbtqbar.org, and the American Bar Association. And as always, our first read guest is always our largest source. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Scramble through our world-class golf courses or shop your way through the square. Be one with nature as you hike or bike through our parks and trails or hunker down at one of our breweries. And when it's time to eat, Be sure to bite into our eclectic food scene. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace.